everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we talk about the week's hottest legal topics. It is the next to last week in January 2024, and the legal topics keep coming. Um, it has been a fairly momentous week, even outside of President, former President Trump, which we have been talking about a lot. We are going to mention him briefly today with the updates on the E. Jean Carroll case, his very brief testimony and what it might mean. Um, as, But we're going to focus on some other things this week. We're going to talk about the Eighth Amendment and cruel and unusual punishment with the execution that went forward this week. We are going to talk about Texas and immigration. We hit this topic a couple of weeks ago, but we are coming back to it because after the court issued their decision, decision, um, Texas is defying that decision and is still laying down barbed wire um, to prevent incoming potential immigrants, um, legal or illegal. And there is a fight essentially between state and federal governments. We're going to talk about the law that governs that, especially the supremacy clause and what might happen if the governor continues to reject the decisions of the courts. We are also going to talk about the international court and uh, stay tuned for Thomas Hobbes as well as we got to throw something in there, right? Uh, so if you're wondering how Thomas Hobbes fits into all of this, please stay tuned. The other one to stay tuned for in our topics, even if you've got to skip around, is Dr. Vile and I are going to have a hot topic and hot conversation regarding the Michigan parents who have been charged with manslaughter regarding their son who was the school shooter. Um, so we're going to have a really interesting conversation about that and how it applies also to the Newport News shooting. We're going to turn it all around. Join us for this interesting conversation with those topics. I'm Virginia Tarani. I am with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer tell you do. And uh, I am also the CEO of the Law Unscripted, which, which hosts this podcast of the Legal Weekly Wine, as well as offering law exam and bar exam review classes. Check us out on the thelawunscripted.com um, for those classes to check us out and also to have access to the podcast. I am joined by um, co-host Dr. John Vile, who is the Dean of the Honors College of Middle Tennessee State University. Welcome back. Glad to be here. I'm excited about today. Um, I think we are both very passionate about very, many of the topics today, uh, so it might be even more lively than, than usual. It might. We'll see. Okay, so let's talk about the wine because it is the weekly wine, and then let's get straight into our topics. Um, I, I know you're not drinking wine, but what kind of water do you have today? Spring water. Spring water. Okay. Yeah. Very healthy, much healthier than mine, but, you know, grapes are fruit, I assume, and they have some kind of medical quality, allegedly. Um, I am drinking... Uh, Sauvignon Blanc um, from the south of France, 2022. Um, Mont Grave is what I am drinking. I do not do many Sauvignon Blancs, so I am very excited about it. Um, cheers to you, Dr. Vile, and we'll see how well I like this one. And you must have gotten something from your French major, right? Because you said grave instead of gravette. <laughs> right? I, I really tried to pronounce it somewhat correctly. <laughs> the, the little bit I kept from my French major, <laughs> however many decades ago. Uh, I think it's been at least 25 years now. Uh, so, yeah, grave. That, <laughs> cheers to French. <laughs> Actually, very good. Or is that Spanish? <laughs> that's Spanish, I think. Yeah. No, that's very good. That's very light and refreshing, not as dry as I expected. And I don't love the dry wine. So I'm I'm pleased. It's very soft and subtle and um, delicious. So I will continue drinking that wine today. All right, Dr. Vile, let's start out with goodness, what do we want to start out with? Texas. Us, let's start out with Texas. Give okay. us an update of what has happened. And then we're going to talk about what's happening this week. Yeah. And so that people, you know, don't think I have a grudge against Texas. I think we hit them hard last week because of Uvalde. Yes, but we did. what's happening now actually has much more constitutional significance. Correct. Which is essentially the governor, Governor Abbott, is defying 
federal authority over naturalization. And by the way, just so people will know, he is a new entry to my recently uh, republished the seventh edition, fifth edition, my encyclopedia constitutional amendments. He's actually Excellent. the first entry there huh. because he has he has a lot of long before this border incident, there are a lot of he's advocating a lot of changes in the US Constitution. And by the way, the Republican Party in the state of Texas had actually proposed, and I don't know if they went forward with it, they were but they were actually going to have a referendum as to whether Texas should stay in the union or declare itself oh an goodness. independent republic. Was that recently? So, yeah, I mean, it was scheduled. How did I miss that? I think it was scheduled for like 21 or 22, and I don't I don't know if they actually had okay. a vote or not. You know, and it would would, <laughs> it would not have been. But, but what's fascinating about that is Abbott is using... He's using a clause out of Article One, Section 10 of the Constitution, mm -hmm. which actually consists of limits on state uh, on state powers. And, and Article One deals with Congress. That's the legislative right. and powers. Article One Eight are the powers of Congress. Article One Nine are limits on the powers of Congress. Article One Ten are limits on the states. And Article One Ten prohibits the federal <laughs> prohibits states from making war unless they are actually invaded. And oh, interesting. This clearly w was done at a time where, you know, national national armies were not that great. And, it, you know, if you were a southern state and you were actually invaded by Mexico or northern state by Canada or whatever, you'd be able to, to react quickly. So of course. Abbott is calling the num calling immigration an invasion and is saying, well, we have the right to do what we want. Well, of course, Article 6 of the Constitution says that the U.S. Constitution, laws and treaties adopted thereunder, are the supreme law of the land. The supremacy we, clause. You know, we've been, right. We've been through this before. In, in the 1820s, John C. Calhoun of, of South Carolina advanced a doctrine of nullification. That mm -hmm. if we did, if states didn't like a law, they could simply adopt their own law. So essentially, what's happened is Texas has adopted a law which says anybody we're going to arrest any illegal aliens in the, and, and I'm using their terminology, right? Any undocumented folks, uh, and we're going to you know try them and deport them. Uh, this is a federal power, Article One, Section Eight, powers of Congress. Now, now it's a it's not quite as clear as I'd like it to be, but Article One Eight gives the powers of naturalization to the national government, which, in definition, is essentially immigration. They they get to decide well, it's who becomes a citizen. as close to immigration as 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 we have there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the the only power. It, it's sort of interesting. The only power that I know that the states had over immigration, and some will react to the term, but I'm just trying to get as close as I sure. can, was, was the 1808 clause, which said that states could continue to import uh, slaves, slaves. And they didn't use the term, but such other persons for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I think uh, they could, Congress could tax up to $10 a person or sure. or something like that. But, but essentially even then we've got you know all of our laws are based on federal agencies dealing with immigration. Sure. Whether and, it's and, legal, illegal, you know, however it is we've got ICE, however many people don't like ICE, that is a federal agency. Well, and this works both ways by the way. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I'm not familiar enough, really, to discuss intelligently the so-called sanctuary cities. Right. But to the extent that a sanctuary city is saying we're not going to, well, I guess there's a difference between saying we're not going to enforce federal laws, right. we're going to leave that up to federal agents, and saying we're going to defy federal laws. Correct. But essentially, you know, there was a case last, I guess it was last week, in which Abbott, uh, put barbed wire over some of the walls or entrances to Texas 
And the court has said the, the, the wire has to come down. But which court has said that? U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. Um, and so the it, highest again, court in the land has said it, that, you that, can't right. do that. I, I mean, we've been through nullification and secession and civil war. Mm-hmm. And most of us think that, we, you know, that issue was pretty much resolved. But it, it does cut both ways. I mean, it, it could be that in the future it will not be a conservative governor in Texas, but mm-hmm. it'll be a, you know, liberal governor in California or Minnesota or somewhere else who, who will similarly be defiant. Um, but, you know, if we have, <laughs> we had a confederal system where essentially states were sovereign Right. Uh, and I mean, more recently, do you want another George Wallace standing in front of the door of a university saying segregation now forever? Uh, right. No, we have a national policy and the national policy may be very flawed. And ironically, you know, to pick up on our conversation last week, it, it appears as though what we feared is actually happening because Congress seems close to a compromise mm. on Ukraine, Israel, and the southern border. Sure. And Donald Trump is saying, no, what what many people think is happening, he's saying, no, I want to do that under my presidency. I want it to continue to be a problem here under Joe Biden so that I can benefit from it. So, you know, whose interest are we going to put first? Is it if we really have a crisis and people believe it's a crisis, take care of it now. Right. And if you can't get 100% and you expect to be reelected, as Trump does, then when you're reelected, you can add to it. Right. But if we have an immediate problem, that problem takes priority over the election of either right. Biden or Trump. You shouldn't push it down the road. It's still an emergent problem. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, it's really... It's a really disturbing phenomenon. So so let me ask you this. As the constitutional law expert and the constitution expert, we've got this Supreme Court decision that now says you cannot do this. Right. We've got the governor who is still ordering the state to put up the barbed wire. Right. What happens now? It's a great question. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you could do what... Uh, what President Eisenhower did in 1958, you could send National Guardmen, Guardsmen in um, and physically enforce it. Um, my guess would be you would first, I don't know, sue the governor or sue the state, hmm. uh, maybe, you know, with some penalty short of execution, <laughs> you know, that might still get their attention. Right. But does it have to go back up to the Supreme Court? I mean, they've already made the decision. Well, I, I don't think it would have to go that far. I mean, I think I think if it if if you had a case uh, enforcement case in the lower court, those courts would feel themselves bound by what the U.S. Supreme Court uh, had said. And then we got get back to the president. So the the third body of government. So the president has the the requirement to enforce the law. That's right. So that's how he would be able to call out the National Guard saying, we've got the interpretation of the law. Right. Again, you know, it's, the the sad thing is, and I'm not sure that the facts are completely established. Sure. But the sad thing is, a week ago, a mother and two children drowned crossing the Rio Grande and federal officials say, claim that if they had been there, they could have saved their lives. Right. No political issue is worth that, you know, even if you think the mother is guilty for bringing her kids here, the kids are not criminals. Right. Uh, and, you know, posturing, you know, posturing sounds fine. It gets you votes. But when it when it affects the lives of literally life and death situation, people need to back off a little bit. Yeah. A little Christian charity would help. <laughs> Assuming it's the the actual practice of true Christianity is, as taught well, in the Bible versus the... You don't have to be a Christian to believe that, you know, people should, innocent people should 
should not be allowed to die if you have it in your capability to stop it. Right. Okay, so that's Texas. Let's head to the Eighth Amendment with cruel Great. and unusual punishment and talk about okay. the the momentous execution of the week. Tell us a little bit about yeah. what's happening. Well, Smith, the, uh, a, a gentleman whose last name is Smith, about two years ago, they went to give him a lethal injection and they couldn't find a vein. Mm. They worked very hard to do it, but they couldn't get they couldn't get it inserted in the time that they had to do it under the law. And so they've they've decided that, you know, maybe lethal injection doesn't work very well with them. I think they're also having trouble getting the ingredients. So they mm. said, well, you know, nitrogen, if you just breathe, breathe nitrogen, that might kill you too. So let's try it out. Now, there's a strong resemblance between this case and a 1947 case, which I'm sure you remember from constitutional law. Of course. Louisiana versus Resweiler. Of course, in that one. They, they, <laughs> had a, they had a mobile, Louisiana had a mobile electric, electric chair, which oh. they would carry around uh, to execute people. And they plugged Francis in uh, and nothing happened. And then... They came back and said, well, we want to execute him. You know, that didn't work. We want to do it again. And the Supreme Court said, well, it was it was a split court. And it said, well, you know, it wasn't anybody, you know, what the state didn't purposely do this. So it's not cruel and unusual to execute him again. I always thought that decision was wrong. I, I just don't think, you, you know, if God intervenes or nature <laughs> intervenes, you, you should know, get the guy a break, you, you, you know, keep him in prison the rest of his right. life. Uh, but, but this is sort of similar. I mean, it's a second execution, which means that he's, but I think that, you know, which means he's already gone through the agony. Now, you know, he's no Sunday school teacher. Sure. Um, he was a hired killer. And mm. speaking of Sunday school teachers, he was hired by a preacher to kill his wife. Which he did. So, I mean, it's a heinous crime. Oh, my goodness. Uh, no doubt about that. Um, but I think I think my focus, if this had come to me on the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically denied a stay of execution, and most of the time they do just deny this. So there wasn't but, an official opinion? Well— Or was I there? there were actually three or four justices who said they would have taken it. So, But I, it was not a full written opinion. Um but I think I would have. I think I would have. I would have said yes to stay as required because, if anything, we don't. And and there's now debate as to whether it was cruel. Hmm. Um, the state says he held his breath, uh, and tried to struggle, and that's what calls it. The preacher observer says. The guy was twitching for two minutes and then another two or three minutes of agony, uh, and this could have been avoided. But whether it was cruel or not, it was clearly unusual. We have never executed someone in the United States before through nitrogen, and as far as I can tell, I don't think they did this with rats or mice or monkeys or no other experiments. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I you know. And again, I'm not an expert on it, but it's, you know, it goes back in 1973, Furman versus United States. I'm sorry, Furman versus Georgia. The Supreme Court decided that as then administered, the death penalty was unconstitutional mm. because and then subsequently they said, well, it's not it's not unconstitutional in and of itself. It's on it's only unconstitutional if. You don't consider mitigating. You don't consider uh, aggravating factors. You don't do it by a jury trial and the like. But what's also disturbing about this case is my understanding is the jury decided to give this man life in prison, and it was a judge who said, no, he deserves a death penalty. And so, so he overrode the the mercy of the jury. He, he did, and and there may there may have been warrant for that, but that seems inconsistent with the standards as I understand them that the court has imposed on on death penalty cases. Interesting, but despite all of that, he was, he was officially executed. executed this week. He was, yes. And in fact, what was fascinating the 
the person in the room with him, the, the spiritual counselor, had to sign a statement. They had never done this before, and they were not sure what the impact might be on an observer. So he had to sh- sign a waiver saying, yes, he understood that he could die from this as well. Wow. Which is a pretty pretty gutsy chaplain, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Well, and there are so, it's, in my understanding, there are so few states right now who actually either have the death penalty or even impose the death penalty. Well, Texas is big on the basis. death penalty. Southern states generally, uh, and again, you know, there are different cultures within the United States. That's what federalism is about. Um, And so you do have, I I don't know if Alabama is a particularly high, Texas is the one that usually stands out Mm -hmm. as doing a lot of them. But if I recall, the Biden administration has actually, they have actually, are actually pursuing a death penalty in the case of the Buffalo shooter. Uh, oh. I believe it's. I believe that's the case. But for the first time in his administration, they have actually pursued a case uh, involving capital punishment federally. Yes. Yeah, I was on um, as a prosecutor in Newport News, Virginia. I was um, on the motions team for a capital case, and it was the first one they'd had in like twelve or sixteen years. Um, this was back in 2014, 2013, 2014. And I remember the office's idea was, well, if this case doesn't get the death penalty, then no case gets the death penalty right. because it was right. so awful. Um, and sure enough, the the jury found him guilty of the capital case of capital murder, um, but they did not impose the death penalty. In, you know, one of the fascinating things about this case is – Smith was white, and as and as far as right, and I believe the the murder was of a white person, mm. and you know one of the major concerns about the death penalty is that it's most frequently given to African Americans and particularly African Americans who kill whites sure. rather than fellow African Americans. Sure, and so that's that was not a particular uh, factor in this case. Now, race has come to factor in a very fascinating development in the Fonnie Willis case. Let's talk about that. Okay, it's sort of an odd jump here, but it's but still we discussed hot last as legal week, topic. Right. One of one of the defendants has charged that Willis has hired a prosecutor, paid him an inordinate amount and that they have a romantic relationship in which he has gifted her with vacation trips, presumably from the money that he's making as a prosecutor. So a conflicts Um, of interest claim. Right. But what's the little wrinkle that we got this week is that Willis appeared in a church, which she has every right to do, obviously, (laughs) but she, she she was given the platform And she argued that the reason they were coming after her and this other attorney was because because of their race. You know, wasn't it interesting that they went after the two blacks rather than the other white prosecutors? And Trump is now saying, well, you know, prosecutor has no business. You know, this is tainting the jury pool. Now, I think what would happen there is even if, even if it was decided that her words were racially inflammatory, I think that this is something that you would take care of by voir dire. I believe I, so I think too. You would, you know, you would give you would give some more, which is the process of selecting jurors. And you know what's fascinating about this, you know, the prosecutor, in a sense, it doesn't make it doesn't affect one way or the other whether the people she's charged are or are not guilty of racketeering. Correct. And in fact, some of them have already pled guilty to this. Right. And um, it was it was including Sidney Powell. The the thing to me that separates it is whatever her motivation, and I'm not giving her a pass. Right. No. But it was brought before a neutral grand jury. And a grand well, jury. Grand juries are notorious. <laughs> rubber know, stamp. They say a good prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Of so course, you, but it's caution there. still technically right. in the justice system. They are pulled right. from the general community 
at well, large. And it will then have to go to a pettit jury, exactly. which would decide on guilt or innocence. So it's but, a separate piece that they have said, yeah. okay, there's probable cause. So it's not like right. she just went after them. There's a separate right. body for good or for ill that has said there's probable cause. And to me, there's no reason not to have the pettit jury, the trial jury, then decide if there's enough evidence. Now, maybe she right. should be taken off the case. Maybe another right. prosecutor presenting the evidence. It, it smells I mean, maybe bad. Maybe Q will need, right. Her misdeeds do not necessarily void the indictment Correct. for future prosecution. But it, if she, in fact, engaged in a romantic relationship with somebody that she's hired and paid a lot of money to, that certainly seems to be very indiscreet on her part. Absolutely. It would certainly raise questions. You know, I would not want to be prosecuted by someone who I thought was making inordinate money or was in some kind of romantic relationship. And so. it's certainly something that could be brought in the ethics bar. That Absolutely. she could be brought up against in the bar of her state saying this is unethical behavior by an attorney. They sh she should be censured. She should have her license revoked. That that seems to be the appropriate arena. So it, it, it sounds like if there's credibility to it, there absolutely should be some kind of, I hate to use the word punishment, but some form of issue for it, something to be done well, for it. It should not be allowed to affect the prosecution. Right. Let those and charges stand. Let that, that is guilt versus ethics. Well, and it's not, not guilt. Well, I mean, guilt versus. It's predicate to guilt. To the idea, guilt. Yeah. right, that the, yeah. the jury would be finding whether they're guilty or not. It doesn't make the defendant's actions not guilty. It doesn't mean right. that they're not guilty of a crime just because she might be unethical or behaviors might be unethical. So to right. me, it's two separate things, but it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. And, 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 and it sort of feeds into Trump's narrative that, you know, this is all political. People are out right. to get me. And it, I mean, this is not not just Trump, but, you know, a lot of Right, for their own personal gain. Right. So they're saying, well, he's doing it for personal gain. Well, this certainly seems like someone's doing it for their personal gain against him. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, so now let's go to, let's go to Trump, and then let's finish on Michigan. Yeah. And, and the Mich which one, no, the international court, because we got to get Thomas Hobbs in there. Yeah, we sure do. I mean, so, so what? I mean, it's fascinating. There, there's been a, a case brought against Israel in the International Court of Justice, mm -hmm. basically saying it's engaged in genocide. Right. And it's 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 a very bizarre argument when you think about, you know, this was predicated by an attack by a group that has said they want to wipe out all the Israel, you know, all the Jews. Right. Um, but what's fascinating about it is the 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 court, as I understand it, has said there's enough evidence to go forward with a trial on this, and they have they have strongly encouraged Israel to cease its operations or or at least its method of operation in in Gaza. Right. But what's fascinating about the internet now, Israel, I understand, is is a party to the International Court of Justice, but we're we're similar to, only this is a magnified example of Texas, and what are we going to do about a, 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 a governor's defiance? Right. You know, Thomas Hobbes posited, you know, that in a state of nature, if you had no laws that were established, settled, and known, that there would be a war of all against all. Mm. And Locke and Hobbes both said, you know, the problem with the state of nature is even if there's a sense of morality— you don't have an impartial judge and you don't have an impartial enforcer. Mm. And this is what happens in international law. I mean, we can scream as, as I have many times about what I think the outrage of Russia invading Ukraine is, but there's, there's no outside force other than another, other than Ukraine itself or its allies right. who are going, you know, you can tell Russia you're doing wrong and, Putin is going to go ahead and proceed doing what he's doing. And so it's it's sort of a reminder, you know, that international affairs comes much closer usually to the state of nature 
than do internal affairs. Although if you look at a country like Haiti, or if you look at what's happening in Bolivia right now and other nations, sometimes law breaks down and you do end up back in a in a state of nature where the, you know, the biggest gang or the biggest gun or, you know, the person with the greatest force or group with the greatest force in, ends up uh, terrorizing everyone else. And I, I mean, look at the, the international tribunal for the war crimes with Rwanda. Right. I mean, that right. to me is the, one of the most shocking examples in the last decades. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, in some, you know, in, in South, I guess it was South Africa, wasn't it, where they had the, what was it, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where essentially right. they agreed that they would not, I don't know if it was no punishment or no execution, but right. for those who at least would tell what their role was, it, you could at least get it out so people would understand the magnitude of the crimes that had been committed. Mm. Okay, so now let's touch on the E. Jean Carroll case. It was not okay. as exciting as I thought it would be this week, I got to no, say. No, it wasn't, and particularly after the after the New, New, New Hampshire primary, Right. You know, how you can win a primary and then start spitting nails about how angry you are. But it was maybe a huge it was success lucky. for him this week. Pardon? Huge success for Trump this well, week. Well, it, it it was a success. I don't know if I call it a huge success because, you know, Haley got what? 40-some percent of the vote, it was like— It was you know, a larger percent than expected, but maybe I mean, because certainly DeSantis was early, dropped out. earlier expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you, you would think the best thing to do is to emphasize— and, and he did, you know, after Iowa, he really sort of emphasized the positive. Right. After New Hampshire, he just seemed perturbed that there was still somebody in the rink, uh, right. in, in the ring with him. Uh, and I was thinking, okay, he's going to go to the trial the next day and be so upset. And of course they postponed the trial for a day. Right. And the judge, you know, the judge was not, was not broken any, any nonsense. Uh, he basically grilled the attorney, you know, now what is your client going to say, you know, on this? And Trump ended up adding a sentence or two after the yes or no, Mm-hmm. Uh, the the problem, of course, is there's already been a trial that has ascertained that Trump is guilty of an offense. Well, he's that already, he's liable for defamation. Right. That, that, that's right. It's civil rather than a criminal mm-hmm. case. Um, and this, what happened is after, my understanding is after that verdict, he has continued saying the same things. Correct. And he's been sued again for defamation. And, you know, here's one where... You know, the law is supposed to be equal. It's not supposed to discriminate against you because you're poor or because you're rich. Right. But this is a case where being rich doesn't help. Right. Because once you get beyond, you know, what are the compensatory damages? How much did you actually damage this woman's reputation? Mm -hmm. Then you get to punitive damages. How much do you have to charge to keep somebody from doing this again? To keep them silent. To billionaire. You might have to charge him a lot more. I think they're now asking for $30 million than you would if you were not. Right. And by the way, this goes to another legal issue, which I'm sure— Bring it on up. Discussed. Maybe no one has ever discussed on, on this forum before. But, you know, there are, there are people who suggest that parking and moving violation tickets mm. ought to be based on wealth. If I if I'm sure. a billionaire, I just speed all the time and pay the fifty a hundred dollars. Right. But if I have to pay the equivalent for my income or my of you know if I had to pay a hundred thousand dollars every time I speed, maybe I wouldn't. Yeah, maybe I wouldn't. So it's just sort of an interesting you know lanyap as we would say as Louisianians would say a little extra. Here. <laughs> Yeah, so the spice on the side. uh, Right. And so the spicy with the testimony, I mean, it was like three minutes. I was so excited. And I was like, wait, wait, you blinked and it was over. Um, Where there were three questions where Ahaba asked whether he stood by his testimony in a previous deposition, denying her allegations. He says 100% yes. She then asked, did you deny the allegation because Miss Carroll made an accusation? 
And here's where he says, that's exactly right. Yes, I did. She said something that I consider, considered a false accusation, totally false. This is when the judge cut him off, saying the court has to strike what he just said, completely disregard it. And this was the fear going in because he was instructed throughout the trial, you can't, his counsel and him could not claim that this was false. Right. Because there was already a decision that it was defamation. So he was told continuously, you cannot say that it wasn't defamation. You cannot say that you didn't sexually assault her. You There's cannot actually say- a little wrinkle, though, as I understand it. Okay. The court didn't originally determine that she had been raped. Correct. It was sexual abuse. Right. And... When he denies that and the judge says that's already been determined, well, it, th- there's at least a little difference in the terminology. There and is. So it, it may not it may not be completely over here. Right. But the, the continuous, I mean, for all these weeks, the judge has said, you cannot say you didn't do this. No one right. can say you didn't do right. this. And that's the, the second thing out of his mouth is completely false. So, well, and again, different audiences. True. Courtroom. And the political arena. But to me, the courtroom, this is where I would have cried foul and said, look, you know, how many times do we have to tell him this is a mistrial? Because how can the jury mishear this? How can they pretend they didn't hear it? Well, and we found this in mock trial, right? Mm -hmm. Strike that from the record. You can't unhear it. Striking it it from the record and striking it from what somebody has heard may be two different things. They've already heard it, and they've heard it from the former president. So how much weight are they going to give it? And to me, me it strikes of complete defiance, of he's going to get up there and say what he wants to say in order to improperly influence the jury. So in my mind, if I'm Jack Smith— Am I, well, if I'm Fonnie Willis and I'm looking at this, I am going to pin down any testimony he might have before he gets on the stand with well, as they tried many. To do that. They did, but it still didn't work. So how and, do you control way, it? My understanding is midnight or last night he got on mm-hmm. got on the media and, and repeated the charges pretty much. Right. So he, he, here's where it becomes a little precious that he's using social media to influence the audience and his folks are accusing Fawny Willis of using her platform to, you know, not necessarily consistent. Right. Yeah. So the the final question was, did you ever instruct anyone to hurt Miss Carroll in your statements? And he said, no, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. Um, and, and that was about it. So he gets and that off. was struck as well. I have everything after no. Yeah. Um, so I think today, this is Friday. We're here in closing arguments. It may, That's by right. the time this is posted, we may even have a verdict, we might. um, but stay tuned. We'll address it next week. Hey everybody, quick intermission. This is just Virginia. So since we were doing the taping, we were talking about the E. Jean Carroll trial and the jury had not yet come back. We are now publishing the case or publishing this episode on Monday so that we can include the jury verdict. It was shocking. The last verdict last year for the original E. Jean Carroll trial was about $5 million or or 10. I can't remember exactly which, but Trump had to put up that money in bonds, so to speak, in escrow with the court in order to appeal. This is normal for civil cases where the court requires the money to be put up front so that if there's an appeal and if the plaintiff still wins, that that money is available to the plaintiff. In this case, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's an $83.3 million verdict in favor of E. Jean Carroll and against Trump. In order to appeal in the New York court, he is going to have to put up at least some kind of money. Normally, it's 100%, so the $83.3 million, um, but it's also usually extra costs and expenses. The transcript has to be paid for for the reporting costs. There's a court reporter that makes a transcript for all of the days of trial. That has to be paid for. Usually, the 
court costs have to be fronted and put into escrow. It is possible that bond would be taken rather than a full cash amount. So that would include at least some cash amount as well as collateral. This is some kind of property that's put up. In $83.3 million, it's not your normal house that's put up. This may require Trump to actually put up one of his larger properties. I don't know about the Scotland property. I'm not sure it would even be used as collateral since it's an entire another country that's at play. And usually there's no property that can be tagged. So the property that is normally tagged and put up for collateral is in the same state as the judgment. So in this case, $83.3 million is the verdict. Most of that was punitive damages. And I pulled something up to make sure I'm saying it right. $18.3 million is compensatory. So a, a replacement for the reputation that she lost. There's no real quantity that can say, well, it's you know like a medical expense. But in this case, the jury said, you know what? The loss of reputation was so bad we're going to award $18.3 million just for compensatory, and then we're going to add $65 million in punitive damages. Um, as we're talking about through this, this episode already, the punitive damages are what the jury says, you know what, this is what it's going to cost because it's so bad and done so many times that the only way we feel that we can prevent it from happening again, this is more of a punishment verdict in the civil world, is to give an amount for punitive damages, where we hope that that will stop the behavior. Now, there's claims allegedly that Trump has already appealed. I'm not sure how that looks for the appeals bond and escrow. So in the escrow, he's already got the, the last year's verdict so that if he is ruled against, it can go to E. Jean Carroll. Something similar is going to have to happen. Now, in most courts, it's not just that amount. It's usually, like I said, the court cost, the reporter's cost, and sometimes up to 110% of the cost so that anything extra is covered. So that's where we stand with E. Jean Carroll. It is a shocking award, um, even for me in the civil arena, especially for the punitive damages. And we'll see what happens next. Again, let's hit the final topic, which might be the most contentious for us, of the, uh, the Michigan shooting. The, okay. uh, the boy who shot up, I think it was the elementary school. Um, I believe it was junior high or high. But oh, that's right. Uvalde was yeah. the, the elementary school. Uh, yeah, Oxford, Oxford High School yeah, okay. in Michigan. And his parents have been charged. This has been an ongoing thing several years now, but his parents were charged, and they have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. Right. Now, and they're tell, being tried separately. Yes. Tell us how this is set up, and tell us a little bit about the law in Michigan, because I know that, that you've got a little bit more of those details. Well, I'm not sure that I, I have— stronger opinions maybe than you do without having <laughs> much there. more knowledge. <laughs> but my, my understanding is she is being charged. The mother's on trial first. Right. And between the two of them, one of them bought the weapon. The mother is actually seen taking him to a shooting range, yeah. uh, which you might say was actually responsible I've taken my son uh, to the shooting range. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you know, if you if you're going to give give someone a gun, then you need. But but she's being charged, as I understand it, with involuntary manslaughter. And if you were to ask me, with what I know, which is limited, was she a responsible parent? I think the answer would be no. Was she grossly negligent? I think the answer would be depend on the facts, you know, right. which parent is more responsible, you know, what did they know and what didn't they know? But yes. I think you could make a good argument. I think if, if your son or daughter had been shot, uh, or you were the teacher who got shot and survived, I think you could bring a case against the family for damages. But I'm concerned that apparently no one has ever before been charged in a case like this with manslaughter, which is a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. And to me... Because of the actions of another per of their son. Right. Because of the actions of another person when they were not on... Well, 
No, let's I mean, there's the that. hitman theory, but that's different. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have the Manson case. Manson was not in, in California. He was not on the scene when this massacre of. Uh, but there was the, the conspiracy, where in this case, yeah. there's not an alleged conspiracy that, among the right. parents so and the son. I'm concerned that this resembles. Now, I'm not sure that this would be the technical answer, but the Constitution prohibits ex post facto laws, and they are laws that either make something criminal today that wasn't yesterday and charge you for it, or aggravate a penalty that wasn't in place. You know, when you committed a crime, there was no capital punishment, and they add capital punishment afterward and try to impose it on you. And I'm concerned that if, in fact, this is the first such prosecution, that a person did not have due warning Mm-hmm. Uh, and so would be a kind of excess factor. Now, I understand you have a different different view of this. I, I, I do. Um, I have, so I'm looking it up here because um, I want to make sure I get this. So You're going to pull a case out on me that I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I've got, well, possibly. So I also, you said you might have more, more passion on this one. I don't know. I might have equal, if not more. So um, in Michigan, it says any person who shall commit the crime of manslaughter shall be guilty of a felony. Um, But I want to make sure that we get what are the elements of manslaughter? What do you have to prove? Um, So it's killing of another without intent. Okay. Um, It is... Goodness. So killing of another without intent, but usually it is... Um, okay, so without intent, malice, or premeditation. Um, they created a situation where the risk of great bodily harm or death was high, knowing that as a result of their actions, he or she, uh, um, that they knew at the time that serious harm or death would likely result. So in my mind, this is not ex post facto, where someone could look at this and say, okay, if we look at, and I don't know all of the facts, this is what would come out in either. trial, but based on what they knew of their son, based on what they did with getting him a gun, teaching him to shoot a gun, I think the biggest issue is what they did that day. And, and I don't know all the facts, but if I recall correctly, it was something to the effect of they had reason to believe that he was bringing a gun to the school. They had some kind of text communications where they had reason to believe that he was about to shoot up the school. One of the parents made a comment to the effect of go get them or I I mean, it was something glib where they either really didn't realize this is what's going on and it seemed like they were joking or they did and it was seen as an encouragement. And and to clarify my own position. mm -hmm. If they withheld information right. from the school about the possession of a gun, I don't know what offense that would be, but I suspect that that might be an offense. And and that's why right. I think they're charging the involuntary manslaughter, where if they had knowledge that there was a risk of great bodily right. harm or injury or death, that they could be guilty of involuntary manslaughter without them having done it. Um, It's a lot like negligent homicide, right? Where if you get into a car, you've been drinking and driving, you don't go out and purposely try to kill somebody in a hit and run or a drunk driving incident. But your actions have created such a high risk of the possibility of death that, you know, if it happens, then you should have known. It's a new or should have known standard. And in this case, I, I, okay, look, look, let me say this. I, it terrifies me as a parent that I could be held guilty for an action of my child. Terrifies me. I cannot imagine if my child children went out and committed such a heinous crime that I would then be picked up and put in jail. Now, there's an ignorance issue, though. And the question in my mind here is, I don't believe it's improper to charge them. I don't know that they will be convicted. And I think there's a lot of sympathy there. I even have sympathy for them. Is did they really understand? You don't want to think that of your own children. No. And most parents don't, right? There's like, well, he wouldn't do that. Maybe he's joking. And Um, and let me add something else because mm -hmm. this often comes in and, and it bothers me that so many times 
you know, will associate a school shooting. And we had, you know, we had one in Nashville recently that at the church uh, seems school, to be yeah. the covenant school, you know, seems to be tied to some kind of mental illness. Right. But most people with mental illnesses do not act out by killing people. Right. And so even if you knew your son or, had mental or, or, illness. or child had mental issues, you would not necessarily now would it be one, you know, you can go to actually in Plato when they when when uh, Socrates discusses justice, mm. one of the questions is, well, you know, if justice is giving people what they deserve, if somebody owns a sword and they're insane, should you give it back to them? Right. And the obvious answer would be, well, you know, no, no. not while they're insane, you're not doing them any favor. Right. So th- there's, but I, I don't, I mean, th- maybe the good thing about this is maybe, I think it's going to a jury, maybe, maybe a jury trial will clarify the degree to which the popular mind would say, you know, yes, this is guilt, you know, guilt enough to go around to three people, or let's focus on the person who actually did it. Right. And again, absent intent. Correct. Uh, uh, if the parents had some, you know, if they wanted the school shot up, then put them in the same category with the son. Absolutely. Act, put them in with first degree murder versus the right. involuntary. And that's where it's the difference is they're right. not saying this was their intent. They're saying clearly it's not their intent. But it was such a reckless disregard. So how much can they prove that they actually knew? And that's what the facts are going to turn on. So I don't think it's improper that they're being charged or they're being tried for it. I think it is literally a factual decision of a, a proof of intent. How much so can like they my prove? Pal, you could argue this on either side, couldn't you? You could. And now and, let and, me... And make- and and you would do due diligence to either side to check that hired you. I mean, you you would absolutely have the responsibility. Yes, absolutely. And so let me compare it to two other cases. So let me do it to the the most closely resembling in my mind, and then wrap it up with another is the Newport News shooting, mm-hmm. the Newport News Virginia shooting with this six year old last year who shot his teacher, who survived, had multiple surgeries, has had traumatic effect and permanent injuries but survived. And um, so that one has been close to my heart because I I prosecuted in Newport News um, and know the jurisdiction, um, know the laws fairly well. The mother of the six-year-old was charged with multiple crimes. Um, She was charged with multiple crimes in federal court and in state court. So in Newport News, um, the the city of Newport News under state jurisdiction and the federal court um, in the same jurisdiction. So in the state case, she was charged with um, child neglect, criminal child neglect. By her actions, she actually was neglecting her own child and putting him at risk. Well, and in fairness to her, I think he was... I think he was a very troubled child. Yes, that but, appears you know, to be. It's probably hard for any parent to constantly keep track of everything there. Right. But, but then she was, was also charged with federal cases. But it right. wasn't manslaughter. It wasn't attempted manslaughter. Right. It wasn't right. attempted any kind of murder or harm. The federal charges were interesting because she was charged not with the actual issue with the teacher. She was charged with using marijuana while in possession of a firearm, which was a felony, and making a false statement about her drug use during the purchase of the firearm, which is also a federal felony, where you, well, you can only get a firearm to, if you don't have, aren't using drugs. Similar to one of the charges against Joe Biden. Biden's son, right? Hunter Biden. Yeah. Exactly, as he should not have been able to get a gun because he was using, actively using drugs. Right. So in that case, it's interesting because, I mean, it's a six-year-old versus a teenager and an adult, but she was not charged with any kind of attempted wounding, attempted malicious wounding, attempted murder, actual murder. She she was charged with the child aspect and with the firearm aspect. So I think that's a really interesting contrast between the two where something heinous and horrible has happened by a child that, that is yours. And what's the difference in the charges and how will get, they go? So, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to know whether the prosecutors weighed, you know, were there some other charges that they could have brought? Oh, they, I know judgment, they did. They would have, 
they would have had a better chance of winning on those. On the other hand, I mean, maybe it's time to set a precedent. Although, I mean, I don't know. I it seems like we really just don't want to tackle the issue of gun control. It's hard. And, you know, and so we sort of look for scapegoats. You know, it's the insane. It's the parents of the, you know, the, the mentally ill. It's it's this and that rather than, well, you know, maybe it's the caliber of the weapon that we let. You right. know, maybe it's the A, you know. The maybe type the of child, weapon. No, mm-hmm. you know. Should the child have ever been able to have that kind of weapon at that age? No. You know, there are all kinds of questions. No, a- yeah, the access. As as mm-hmm. a society, we really haven't haven't addressed very well. Right. So the final application that I have, these ex post yeah. facto laws, et cetera, is I was in Virginia prosecuting when it was we were using for the first time, whether you agree with it or not, the it appeared to be a matter of first impression while I was there that we were prosecuting distributors of drugs for felony murder, where if they distributed drugs and someone overdosed and died, that they would no longer just be convicted or prosecuted for possession of drugs or distribution of drugs, but that that could then extend to felony murder, which would be death during the commission of a felony. And, and I was and there through that. And I'm assuming this that. is not marijuana we're talking about, right? No. Oh, no. We're it was probably talking about psychedelic drugs or schedule one and something two. that would, yeah. Yeah. Heroin, cocaine, yeah. meth, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and it was it was an issue of first impression is it hadn't been tried before. And I did presentations on how far does the felony murder um, statute go? Can it be applied to this situation? And since then, it has continued to be applied. But I was on the first in Winchester, Virginia. I was the one who did the first prosecutions for those. Um, now, again, I don't I haven't been prosecuting felony murders for that for a very long time, but it to me, just because it's been done for the first time doesn't mean that it is an ex post facto law or shouldn't be done. I, I acknowledge that. Uh-huh. And I, I said Oof. it's like a, like an ex post facto <laughs> law, uh, but it, it's, I, I don't know. We, we've had so many shootings that if this yeah. is, a, you know, many of them by young people in high schools, and if this is the first application, I would be wary of it. And, uh, and but, truly, as a parent, it terrifies me that yeah. if, I mean, I don't like it. I I hope it doesn't go through for the sake of everyone, all of the parents who are trying to prevent a school shooting, who are trying to get their children help. Um, the mental health system, in my mind, is broken. It's Absolutely. not in a place where it effectively helps and treats especially children. And the idea that even if I know a child has mental illness, I can't prevent it, but I would be charged truly is frightening. Um, And I think to many other parents as well, because how many times does this happen now? And the parents are asked, well, did you know? Were there any signs? Why didn't you do something? With drugs, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are certain types of drugs, particularly fentanyl right now. I mean, it's gotten worse since you were a prosecutor. Yeah. Or I would assume, you know, yes. if you're dis- if you're knowingly distributing fentanyl, we know there's a pretty good chance somebody's going to die. Substantial from Substantial risk. Um, yeah. And a case like that, I, I I think I would agree that that you know, if somebody does die, go after the distributor. Right. Um, though, what would probably happen? It would be not the distributor. It would be someone on the street. Right. You know, doing a side hustle who probably had no idea that he was selling fentanyl. Right. And that's the other thing is it was the sad part about those, A, that, you know, first of all, clearly that someone had died. Um, But the other part, it was usually a friend who was sharing their drugs. It's like, oh, they're at a party. Well, here, have some of mine. Didn't realize how much they had been giving or that it was laced with the fentanyl. Um, and they end up dying and they drop the guy off at the hospital or they run away and nobody reports it because they've given them the drugs. So there, there are some amnesty rules um, throughout the states where if they actually report it, they may right. be saved at least from the felony murder prosecution, but not necessarily the distribution or the it's possession. It's unintended consequences yeah. of laws. Yeah. Always something to be wary of. Okay. So I think we had some lively discussions as promised at the I think beginning. We did. 
If, if anybody likes the discussions we're having, please click like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, make a comment. I am catching up on comments. So anyone who has made a comment, bless you. I love them. I'm watching them. I am trying Most to respond. That's true. Most <laughs> of them I do. If they're offensive or just mean or cursing, I really don't love them. It's disrespectful. But most of you out there are having really good conversation topics, um, and I am getting to them, I promise. Um, so stay tuned with us. Continue to like and subscribe so that you can see next week's and the following, um, as well as to get it out there to more people who can see us and keep up with the hottest legal topics of the week. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC. This is Dr. Vile with Middle Tennessee State University, and we will catch you next time on The Law Unscripted with the Legal Weekly Wine.